This is the Future of Work Limited Series Podcast, brought to you by Andrew R. Timming, Professor of Human Resource Management at RMIT University. This podcast series brings together world-leading experts and thinkers to discuss employment trends and the future of the labor market. You can follow me on Twitter at TimmingLab. That's T-I-M-M-I-N-G-L-A-B. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Professor Andrew Timming, and I'm very pleased to be sitting down today to talk with Dr. Chris Berg. Chris Berg is a Principal Research Fellow and Co-Director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub, the world's first dedicated social science research center studying blockchain technology based at RMIT University, Melbourne. Associate Professor Berg is one of Australia's most prominent voices for free markets and individual liberty, and a leading authority on regulation, technological change, and civil liberties. He is the author of 11 books. Associate Professor Berg is an academic fellow with the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, a research fellow with the University College London Center for Blockchain Technologies, a founding board member of the Worldwide Blockchain Innovation Association, and the International Society for the Study of Decentralized Governance, and is on the academic board of the Samuel Griffiths Society. He is a member of the steering committee of the Australian government's national blockchain roadmap. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Really well. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Good, good. Uh, let's um, let's jump right in here. Uh, as you know, I want to talk a bit about um, the uh, future landscape uh, in relation to the regulatory environment. Um, I guess not just here in Australia, but but more more widely, if you can speak to that. And I guess the first question I'd like to ask you is um, because I think there's a distinction here that we need to make at the beginning, which is the difference between what do you think the future of, of government regulation will look like and what do you think that it should look like? Because I'm <laughs> obviously uh, aware of the fact that not everyone is uh, optimistic about um, how things are, are heading. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a really good distinction. Um, uh, and sometimes I'm uh, quite pessimistic. So uh, the uh, the last 30 years has seen a really substantial growth in regulatory governance. So the idea that the primary way or one of the primary ways that governments interact with their citizens and interact with the economy is through regulation. Now, um, we're, we're all used to that now because, of course, we've all grown up in that world. But that is quite a stark change from some of the previous models of government action that were more focused on sort of welfare state models or even nationalization of public enterprises. So in the 1980s, in the 1970s, 1990s, when a lot of people talk about an era of deregulation and liberalization, really a lot of that was about, well, selling those big state-owned enterprises and deciding to instead regulate the benefits that people thought they got out of those state-owned enterprises. So if you look at if you look at the history of regulation in Australia and in most of the developed world, there's a really sharp increase in regulation in the uh, however measured. Uh, so for instance, in the pages of regulation, 
and the costs of regulation on the economy, um, lots of other different ways to measure it. But we can see really sharp growth on really any any index. Now, would, would you say that, that that holds true for both uh, labor governments and liberal governments, that is to say conservative governments? Yeah, there can be distinctions. Um, and in fact, the United States has some quite sharp distinctions between different um, uh, stripes of government. But for the most part, and certainly in Australia, there's not a clear distinction between regulatory growth on uh, from conservative governments and, and labor governments. Hmm. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, not at all. So, um, look, so since we've seen this growth, um, you can sort of surmise that the incentives, the political incentives behind that regulatory growth will continue into the future. Um, this has some really significant problems if we care about things like economic growth, um, if we care about open markets, because that regulation, e even if each individual regulatory intervention might be justified on its own grounds, that regulation acts as a sort of like it gunks up the works. It prevents us, um, it prevents economies from um, adapting. It prevents people from making exchanges in markets. And, and that ends up, it's sort of a death by a thousand cuts problem. Um, you know, one cut doesn't hurt you. One new regulation doesn't hurt you, but a thousand cuts ultimately will. Um, I think that's a really serious problem. We can maybe talk about some of the countervailing pressures behind that. But I think the macro and the, the, the um, more general point is that there's been really significant regulatory growth. That regulatory growth has, has lots of origins, but I don't see that there's anything that's going to, that there's any fundamental change in the political incentives to increase regulation in, in, in the Australian or, or really the global economy. Mm. So just for the benefit of our listeners who may or may not be aware of what a libertarian is, can you just define the, the sort of essence of libertarianism? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I should be should be clear about my political prize, I guess, on this. Um, so, I'm I'm a libertarian. So, a libertarian is a particular political philosophy, political ideology that um, believes very, very strongly in the um, power of spontaneous coordination. Um, believes very strongly in the power of voluntary community organization. Um, so, ultimately, um, one way to think about the libertarian. Um, perspective is that uh, we, as in the libertarian community, believes in um, social liberalism. So we believe in things like uh, uh, gay, mar gay marriage, um, the ability for you to make choices in the social sphere, as well as the um, uh, government respect for the ability to make um, free market economic decisions as well. So we want the government both out of your wallet and out of your bedroom at the same time. So libertarians aren't strictly conservative in that sense. They actually share a bit in common with both conservatives and progressives, depending on the issue. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, I've spent a long time in um, uh, political activity. I've spent a lot of time in public policy debate. And very often I find myself on the same side as uh, Greens members of parliament um, in, for example, arguing against um, national security regulations um, argue against, for example, bans on encryption technology in Australia, um, uh, the data retention policy. I've worked a lot with um, uh, members of parliament and um, academics on, on both left and right of all these issues. Hmm. Tell me uh, a bit uh, um, about the, the um, 
success that uh, libertarianism has had um, over the last years in politics. Can you think of a particular uh, politician that ascribes to more or less libertarian beliefs? I mean, most people um, maybe I think incorrectly assume that libertarianism corresponds to sort of right-wing politics. And they might assume that, for example, Trump might be something of a libertarian. And although he's done some work in terms of um, deregulating the American economy. I think if you look at the wider sort of um, international political economy and his stance on trade, he's certainly um, not really anything close to a libertarian. Can you think of someone um, that maybe a common household name that uh, people might be able to refer to to think, yeah, that's what you mean by libertarianism? Wouldn't it be nice if I could answer that question with a common household name, Andrew? Um, <laughs> uh, th there, are, there are absolutely libertarian and um, libertarian adjacent politicians um, in the Australian Parliament um, uh, currently and former. Of course, we have a explicitly libertarian party, which um, formerly had Senator David Leonhelm um, and now currently has two um, MPs at the state level in Victoria and one MP at the state level in um, Western Australia. Um, but there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of parliamentarians that um, have libertarian friendly views, as I see it, and not just in that you know I can agree with them on certain public policy issues. But a lot of politicians will describe themselves as classical liberal, and while that might not be um, the sort of uh, uh, full stack libertarianism that I aspire to and that I hope is adopted by our parliament ultimately. It's very much along those lines that I've described. So socially liberal and economically liberal. Um, and to my mind, we, we have this debate in the libertarian community a lot. Um, and there's a, the libertarian community is a very small um, community and small political ideology. It's not shared by the vast majority of the population, but it still has this habit of writing people off as, well, they're not true libertarians or, or anything like that. But my view has always been, we want to head in a direction of more individual rights, more individual liberties. I don't care what the ultimate goal is, just as long as we're trending in the right direction. I want the next public policy change to be one that respects individual liberty. Um, and in that sense, I think we've got a lot of friends in Parliament. And I can I can name some, some of which are good friends of mine, in fact, former colleagues of mine, for instance, Tim Wilson and James Patterson, Tim Wilson um, in the lower house and Tim and James Patterson in the Senate. Um, and they've got lo lots of other colleagues like that. But um, for the most part, I think there are people who share many of those liberty-centric values in Parliament, in fact, on, on both sides of the aisle. Do you think that libertarian actually might be more widespread, libertarianism as a, as a form of thought might be more widespread than is commonly thought, just based on the fact that it could be a sort of silent majority having those kind of attitudes and they stay silent for you know, various reasons? Yeah, look, that's very possible. And I have seen some interesting data along those lines. Um, so, in fact, the a plurality of Australians tend to be fairly socially liberal and a plurality of Australians tend to be relatively sympathetic to free market objectives like free trade and, and lower taxes. Now, I don't think that makes a political party and I don't think that makes a political movement. But the idea that you could combine those two issue sets together is not completely alien 
to um, uh, the Australian population. And I should also say that it, it's very often the case that Australians tend to think of libertarianism as a alien or foreign ideology. We associate it with the United States very strongly. And, and understandably, there are a lot of really critical libertarian thinkers and libertarian movements that have come out of the United States. But Australia has had a great, if not libertarian, but classical liberal heritage dating back into well into the 19th century. And I think it's incumbent on um, those people who care about the philosophy of individual freedom to um, look at the Australian legacy and understand our own history and our classical liberal origins in that 19th century, um, uh, in that 19th century history. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about um, libertarianism being a perhaps a, a stronger force in America. You can point to politicians like uh, Rand Paul and, and his, his father, Ron Paul, as sort of examples of self-identifying libertarians that end up, um, you know, kind of entering the mainstream of politics, if you will. And and, and I think there's a bit of the, a bit of that is political culture as well. So the United States has a very classical liberal conception of itself dating back to its own constitution and its own founding. And Australia does not have that. Australia has a very, I mean, its constitution is very utilitarian. It speaks only of, um, it speaks of very few individual rights per se, or um, it, 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 there's, there are religious rights in the Australian constitution, but that's about it compared mm. to the um, United States Bills of Rights. But it was also, we weren't founded in a revolutionary movement against a monarchical government. Yeah. Um, and that identification in the United States of its political culture with a uh, and I'm not going to say it's a libertarian political culture, but it's an anti-authoritarian political culture is not the case in Australia. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about um, the relationship between uh, libertarianism and work and employment. What kind of benefits can come from uh, a more laissez-faire um, government that, that deregulates and, and, and doesn't intervene in... Um, the employment sphere. How how can not only organizations but also employees benefit from a deregulated economy? Yeah, so um, it's a really good question. So uh, a, a lot of people think that this is a critical flaw in um, classical liberal or free market economics because um, uh, that they believe that if we had a completely open market for labor, then there would be a race to the bottom. There would be, um, we would be, we would lose a lot of working conditions. Um, the minimum wage would obviously fall away and people would be on, on um, employed, but on breadlines nonetheless. I think that's completely the opposite of the case. I think it's really important, and this is based on some of my research into how regulations themselves function. It's really important in a, um, in a dynamic economy to have flexible markets, to have the ability for um, uh, markets to adjust to change. And we can see that really strongly in 2020, of course, um, during the great economic crisis, crisis that was COVID, that we needed the ability of businesses to adapt rapidly to change. 
Now, restrictions on um, industrial relations, industrial relations regulations that make it harder for businesses to change actually makes the economy less flexible and puts people out of work. It means that instead of adjusting what they do, businesses instead collapse. Um, we can talk about some specifics of that, but the general point is that what we need in a dynamic economy, and we have a dynamic economy regardless of what we might like, and I understand that a lot of people are concerned about the dynamism of our economy and the pace of innovation, but we have a highly dynamic economy, but we have a highly inflexible regulatory framework around employment. And those two things um, fare very poorly together. And it ends up with these really awful situations that, um, for example, because we have a minimum wage, we have this really, I, I, I hesitate to call it anything less than cruel gap around the minimum wage and the amount of money that you get from a welfare payment. And there's this huge gap between the, I, I, forgive me, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the minimum wage is at the moment, but say $20 minimum wage in Australia um, per hour and the equivalent of around $8 an hour um, in unemployment payments through the dole. And if you fall below that $20 threshold, you can't do anything but go on unemployment insurance. And because of course, in Australia, we are incredibly punitive to our welfare recipients. We punish you for it. We insist on you going to, you know, 30 interviews a week or, or what have you, or doing work for the doll, um, uh, turning up to, to um, private sector job um, insurance companies uh, every week and all these sorts of things that we, we punish you because you fall, your productivity falls below the minimum wage. I, I, think, that's, I think that's just cruel. I don't think that's helping the people who we most want to help get a job. I think we are actively punishing them for falling below a regulatory minimum. So from a libertarian perspective, uh, it's best that the state not intervene in the employment relationship. But what would be a libertarian position in relation to, for example, unions, which you could argue intervene, but not as state actors? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I, I don't have a problem with unions. I think that a lot of our industrial relations law gives unions power that they wouldn't have in an open market. But the idea that people coordinate together to share, to, to increase their own bargaining power, well, that's a market response. That's a social community um, response. And I think, in fact, some of the things that conservative governments do to try to crack down on unions, I, I think are really very unjustified. Now, on the other hand, of course, the unions do get very specific legislative benefits in many of these employment um, arrangements. So it's, it's, it's hardly a one-sided um, issue here. But I, I don't think that there's a case against unionism per se from a open market or, or open economy perspective. I, I, I can completely understand why unions exist. And, and I sympathize with um, those who would set up basically social organizations, which is what a union is, in order to increase bargaining power and employment relationships. But I think, I think unions are good in that sense. 
What about the uh, challenge in recent decades um, stemming from, for example, the rise of China? Um, is that not, I think, um, a, a challenge, not just to libertarianism, but to free capitalism um, as we know it, in the sense that you have a, a significant um, <clears throat> period of, of economic growth coming from essentially um, what you could call state-led capitalism? Look, it's a really good question. Um, so the rise of China. Um, uh, so there's there's no problem with a country rising up. And, and to the extent that the growth of um, the Chinese economy has really substantially lifted hundreds of millions of people out of capitalism, that's fantastic. From um, my perspective, there's no inherent... Um, uh, challenges that it poses if another country gets wealthy. But it is absolutely the case that um, the way China has risen, particularly over the last decade, um, brings with it really substantial geopolitical challenges and really substantial moral and ethical um, questions that we have to face in the West as well. And these go well beyond the um, espionage questions, for example, um, that uh, have been raised or... Um, issues around um, agents of the Chinese government being involved in um, Australian public affairs. But even things like um, a lot of uh, a lot of production coming out of the um, uh, out of regions that might be um, substantially uh, oppressed by the Chinese government. I think that creates some really powerful moral and ethical problems that we need to face up with. Um, and when, when we do so, um, I think the right response for us is to insist on things like supply chain transparency. So to know where our goods are coming from and to be willing to make ethical judgments about where those goods are coming from. I don't think that it's right to be using um, cheap goods to prop up Uyghur um, oppression. I think that's, I, I think that's very bad. Now, the the challenge, though, that we have is, do we want the our governments to be involved in those um, issues as well? Do we want to be introducing um, tariffs and taxes on foreign imports in order to try to deal with that? Now, I haven't seen any good evidence to suggest that uh, government action in the West is going to materially affect the oppression of Uyghurs in um, China at the moment. So I'm, I'm just not at all convinced by that, but I do understand that this is a complicated ethical question. And we do need to face that, that uh, there's not a good libertarian answer to this because there are people being oppressed, their individual liberty obviously being um, significantly harmed in China right now. Um, and I understand how um, that makes us feel about when we trade with China. But having said that, I do want the responses to be um, rational, to be protective of individual liberty, to um, not be rash, to be measured and considered, and um, to be done so in a way that furthers individual liberty, not just uh, reacts to a restriction against it. I think it's an interesting geopolitical space, China, because uh, you know it, 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 it calls itself a, a communist party, a communist country. And so a lot of, I think, Western left-wing academics will point to that and say, well, look, see, socialism is a good thing. Look at, look at what they've achieved in China. When the reality of the situation is that it was actually liberalization of the economy uh, in, in China that resulted in the sort of um, 
you know, huge breakneck economic growth, period of economic growth subsequently, but it hasn't been accompanied by, I think, what you were referring to at the beginning of this interview as those sort of like social elements of freedom as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, so I, unfortunately, I do think that many of the, or uh, there has been a really substantial um, uh, reversal of that liberalization that made China wealthy over the last particularly five years or so in China itself, a much more expanded um, party control of private enterprise. I think that's ultimately going to be very, very harmful for um, the Chinese economy and ultimately the prosperity of the Chinese people. Um, but you're absolutely right that the prosperity that they have has been a result of liberalization over the course of decades, not the success of a, a Maoist model of um, party control of private enterprise. So that that's absolutely true. Um, it does make it very hard for us to draw these sort of cheap political conclusions off what is a very complicated political economic system in China, um, made even more so now that uh, there's there's much less um, commercial interaction with China, there's much less travel into China, obviously, um, even before COVID, this was happening. Um, there's a really substantial crackdown on um, journalism, foreign journalists in China. So it's even harder to see into the political economic system of that country, which is um, really very devastating um, because a prosperous and peaceful world is going to have to include a prosperous and peaceful China. Mm. So getting back to what we were talking about earlier about the possibility of libertarianism being a sort of silent majority. Um, on the other side of that coin, you have an extremely loud and extremely vocal set of individuals um, that are rabid proponents of socialism or um, increased government regulation uh, of the economy. You know, how, how, why are these people wrong? You know, what, what, um, <laughs> where are they, where are they mislead, where are they misleading people in terms of their political philosophies? Yeah, look, <laughs> where shall I start? Um, so there, there are two, and I won't present it as why they're wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the case why I think I'm right. Um, I think that human societies face two fundamental problems when they're trying to coordinate their economy, when they're trying to coordinate their society. The first one is information. How do you get information uh, to the people who need it when they need it. And um, Friedrich Hayek, the great Nobel winning economist, really demonstrated so clearly to us that the way you get information through an economy is through the price system. Prices are basically the communication of information about the scarcity or demand for goods. The best way for us to find out whether more people want something than, um, than that, that thing, that good is available, is for them to observe a price change. And that coordinates expectations that um, allows us to um, make decisions about how much to consume. Um, now, in the, in the socialist model, you replace that price system with a system of planning. Um, that planning, that... Uh, attempt to second guess the price system 
has consistently demonstrated to have failed when it is tried, when we are unable to second guess the enormously complicated price system, which is functionally this giant decentralized distributed calculation engine that allows us to make decisions. And the idea that we might be able to replace that with bureaucrats is, is fantastical. It doesn't work in theory, and we definitely know that it doesn't work in practice. So information is the first reason that I think um, uh, that, that makes the case for the libertarianism, or at least the free market economy. The second um, uh, element that you need to care about is incentives. Um, incentives, uh, we all try to make our way in the world and we're all trying to, uh, we're, we're all trying to, you know, get as much of this world as we can. Um, this is why we say things like power corrupts. It's not because power, power is an inherently corrupting thing. It's because when we're given power, we tend to try to use it in our interest in some way. Now, it's obviously possible for there to be um, publicly minded officials and bureaucrats, but at the same time, they're also looking to do things like increase their salary. They're also looking to do things like increase their prestige, even just get a better office with a window um, in, in their, in their building. Um, and that, that accumulation of power in individuals is fundamentally dangerous to society. I think the appropriate response to that is not just to try to get better people into positions of power. The appropriate response to that is to devolve power so that the people who are powerful are in fact not affecting as many people um, as they are in say a national system. We should try to minimize the power centers in society because we're worried that power might make people dangerous, might make them corrupt, might make them rent seekers or so forth. Um, and so when I think about how do we structure the incentives of society, I want to structure the incentives so that we're all looking after ourselves and our family and our community, not that we're granting people control over people they have never met. I want to reduce the amount of political power, bureaucratic power there is in the economy. So those, those two things, incentives and information. That's why I think um, an open economy is vastly preferable to a sort of centralized um, uh, bureaucratical political economy. I thought that was a very gentlemanly uh, answer you gave there. And it does make me wonder. <laughs> Excessively kind, maybe. <laughs> it was very, because, you know, if you think about the the rhetoric um, that's often used on the left, um, I don't think that that approach that you just took, which is I'm not going to tear you down. I'm going to tell you why my position is correct. Um, I don't think that that approach is typically taken uh, on that side of the spectrum. And I do, I do sort of wonder, maybe just as a way of, closing this uh, conversation up, whether you're af ever baffled or confused about the way in which libertarians might be vilified by um, certain quarters of, of society, or particularly these very loud, um, vociferous um, pro-regulation people, um, do you ever wonder, you know, what's so bad about advocating individual freedom? <laughs> Look, I... I oh, 
political ideologies deserve to be debated and they deserve to be debated um, furiously because we are talking about the very structures of our society and we are, it's not a game. The um, proposals that I recommend and the proposals that people who disagree with, with me recommend, you know, can um, change people's lives and they can change them for the worse or for the better. Um, so there's a certain arrogance when you make public policy recommendations and you need to be, you, you do really need to be humble to that. But the thing I think about really strongly when I hear the um, advocates of a um, of more regulation or the advocates of um, higher taxes and so forth is, well, it's not just enough to identify that there are problems in the market, in a free market economy, because there absolutely are. There are market failures, but there are also government failures. And it's not, so it's not a question of pointing out that one thing is bad you have to point you have to make an argument that to do something else would be better and that's what i is never clearly demonstrated to me and i think you know we're all obsessed with american politics of course at the moment and i think the last four years have really demonstrated to that to me as well so we have had a huge debate in the left on the left about whether we need the state to take greater control over the economy, whether we need higher taxes, whether we need greater regulation. And my uh, really simple observation to that is if you did so, you would be handing that power to someone like Donald Trump. Are you really comfortable with that. The question is not, can you imagine a perfect government staffed by perfect people who have the same values as you? The question has to be, can you imagine your worst nightmare getting these powers and then using them in a way that you don't like? The question is not, are there problems in the world? What are you going to do about them? And would that be better than what we have now. You've been listening to Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University talk about the future of the regulatory environment. Um, so Chris, thank you very much for uh, your time today. And I appreciate you uh, sharing a libertarian perspective on the future of uh, employment with us. And um, I hope to talk with you again sometime soon. My absolute pleasure, Andrew, anytime. Thanks, mate.